0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are continuing our deep dive into Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And where we left off in our last episode was exploring the ways in which Paul has come to see through the revelatory acts of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection that there are in fact two voices of the law. It is not univocal in the way of uh, leading to and Granting life, but in fact the law also contains with us within itself a cursing function, which is somehow from God and somehow not from God. And Paul definitely here puts the emphasis more on the not from God part. So, Dad, looking at this new situation, Paul, the former Pharisee rabbi, finds himself vis-a-vis the law. He is now going to start talking about what's in uh, classic Western dogmatic terms we've called justification, but which uh, J. Lewis Martin, the commentator that we've been following closely here, calls rectification. So could you tell us first, um, as you were a former student of Martin's, why exactly he prefers the language of rectification to justification and how this moves us from the old situation with the law to a new one?
1: Yeah, very good, Sarah. That um... I remember vividly as a student when he was introducing this linguistic shift. Uh, In fact, as his student, I wrote a lengthy paper on uh, uh, the righteousness of God in Paul, dikaiosune totheo, the righteousness of God in Paul. And uh, in this uh, paper I wrote for Martin, uh, I uh, discovered that uh, the uh, inquiry into the Hebrew scripture Old Testament background to Paul's usage, uh, the righteousness of the Lord, uh, is a, a term that is probably best interpreted as the salvation bearing righteousness of God. Uh, God's righteousness is God's faithfulness to the covenant which means that even when God comes in wrath to judge Israel for its infidelity, still Israel, under judgment, may hope in the surpassing faithfulness of God who will um, make things right again. And that's this idea of rectification that J. Lewis Martin was seizing upon. In I think the actual source of this terminology for... Martin came from Karl Barth. Uh, In uh, Church Dogmatics, Volume 4, Part 1, Barth talks about justification, where he discusses justification by faith. He explicitly rephrases the righteousness of God uh, as the salvation-bearing faith fidelity of God to the covenant, who comes finally even in and after judgment, to make things right again, to rectify, to put things in the right. And the English translation of Bart uses this English language of rectification. I think that's where Martin got it.
0: Yeah, long-time listeners will remember, or more recent bingers will have noticed, we had an episode early on called Justification by Faith, the Best Thing and the Worst Words. And um, there I talk through my experiences of of trying to teach about justification and how the word now, because of semantic drift, suggests something very different from what it actually is. But rectification is nice, too, not only because it has fewer connotations we might not like imported with it, but it is a lot closer to um, the German that Luther is working from and that Bard is working from, of course. I remember one time I had a conversation with um, um, a lady in church who was, she was English, um, but had spent most of her adult life working in Germany. And she was just trying to sort out, like, what does this this justify thing because i noticed in german it's rechtfertigen and that means just to set something right that's been wrong and i was like well actually that's a lot closer to what we are we're driving at here than justify which now sounds like excuse you know um, in an ethically shady way cover up what you've been doing <laughs>
1: <laughs> right 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 and of course that that's i think the theme that uh, that entails for bart and martin following him is that in the action of justification, uh, rectification, God is converting lost humanity uh, to himself and to his kingdom. So this there's an emphasis on conversion or transformation of the existing subject that, uh, that takes place as an event. As God puts things right with the creation, creatures are actually converted, brought back, and enlisted in the cause of the righteousness of God on the earth.
0: I, I think it's important, too, the way you phrase that, that it's God is the one who is setting things right, and human creatures are the ones who are being set right. The The active and passive relationship there is is really important, and I think that does capture a nuance that also a language like justification seems to lose it, it because it's um, you justify yourself, right? <laughs> like, I, under the circumstances, my, my actions were justified. Whereas I think rectification more correctly puts the theological emphasis on God's work of setting right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the point, this shift in emphasis. Now, of course, for Martin Luther, he famously defined the dikai as zune tothio, the righteousness of God, as die gerechtigkeit, die Gott guilt. Which in English is simply the justice uh, which counts before God, which is valid before God, Uh, and this is a connotation of rectification. If God is setting things right, obviously the right into which the creature is set is what counts for God. You know, so it's not like there's a contradiction here between Luther's famous definition which accents the forensic nature of justification uh, and accentuates the fact that this is an act of God, the judge, judging the world. But again, there's a a kind of a a nuance here that biblically the office of the judge is not that ferocious uh, uh, prosecutor that Luther was so afraid of as a medieval monk. But it's rather like the, in the book of Judges, someone who comes to put things right when Israel is in trouble, who judges between the good and the bad for the sake of the good and th- notions like that.
0: Or even Samuel in the, in the books of Samuel, who even though he isn't quite titled Judge in exactly the same way, he's functioning that way. And he pleads often for Israel. He's not pleading against the, ca- the case against Israel at every time.
1: Okay, so that's rectification by faith. That's Martin's rendering of of this uh, uh terminology in the letter to the Galatians.
0: Right. So then you just said rectification by faith. And we've just been saying rectification is God's work, but when we hear the phrase rectification by faith, it sounds like it's our work because we are the ones who are having the faith. And if, again, listeners recall back to our episode on Romans, um, when I was taking a, a Romans class, uh, my my teacher was an heir of the new perspective on Paul, and the whole class was abuzz with this shocking notion that um, actually our faith was worth squat and that actually it was all about the faith or faithfulness of Christ, and to hear, now I may not have been listening entirely or not hearing entirely accurately what they're trying to say, but they made it sound like throughout the entire Pauline corpus, there is no reference whatsoever to human faith, but only to Christ's faithfulness, that every instance of faith of Christ is, you know, referring to what Jesus Christ is believing and and faithful about, not anything related to us. And um, looking more closely at Um, the text of Galatians as well as Romans, that is inaccurate. There's definitely stuff about our faith. But also I realized that the deeper issue in my class was a lot of people emerging from a kind of evangelicalism where their triumphalism was poor Catholics, they have to do good works, all we have to do is believe and then we're saved. And so faith had become the ultimate good work, and somehow finally that began to sit wrong with them. And then when they discovered that God is the the acting savior of humanity, they were so relieved to get out of this um, very foolish kind of religiosity that they were in that they completely dropped the human elements of faith altogether. So that that's kind of the tangle of issues that has surrounded this question of of rectification slash justification and faith. So how does how does Martin? Um, Im- get us out of that whole big mess where galatians well, is let's, concerned let's
1: let's 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 begin simply with the exegetical issue paul uh, a number of times in galatians uses the genitive expression which li- quite literally uh, in greek says the faith or the faithfulness of christ that's what uh, literally transposing the Greek into English. That's what it says, the faith or faithfulness of Christ. The word pistos can be translated either as faith in the sense of trust, or pist- it can be translated also as faithfulness in the sense of the act of consistently uh, holding to one's word, faithfulness. So there is this expression. Now, Traditionally, <clears throat> especially in Lutheran circles, this was translated as a genitive of the object and therefore put into English the faith in Christ. Pistus to Christo was translated faith in Christ, which of course would then immediately make it to be the human act of putting trust in Christ. Um, what Martin and others are suggesting is that pistis to Christo should be treated as a generative of the subject. That is to say that Christ is the one who believes, or Christ is the one who acts in faithful solidarity, or something like that. Uh, but of course, you know, the suggestion for this latter translation uh, acknowledges the ambiguity. And it's perhaps the case that the ambiguity is deliberate. That there's a kind of a pun or a play on words here, that the faithfulness of Christ is the ground of the human act of trust in Christ. What elicits trust? The fact that surprisingly, beyond all expectations, Christ has been faithful to me, the sinner, all the way to his obedient death on the cross for me. That's exactly what Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that is to say, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the pistos to Christo, the faithfulness of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So in my way of thinking, the you shouldn't make um, force a choice between the objective and the subjective genitive. It's a play on words that incorporates both meanings. And I would be inclined, Sarah, to agree with Martin that the primary meaning is Christ's obedience, Christ's act of faithfulness to God and to us that is exhibited in his giving himself for us. Uh, uh, Paul opens the letter to the Galatians who died for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. That's the action, the faithful action of Christ that elicits human trust.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it also seems quite clear from context that in some cases, the emphasis is more on Christ's faithfulness, and in other contexts, the emphasis is more on our faithful response to Christ. So it doesn't have to, I mean, it can be more one, more the other, or the deliberate pun, as you point out. I just, I want to read this excerpt from Martin, because I think he really hits a nail on the head. He says the placing of trust is a human deed. The placing of trust is also more than a human deed. The structure of Galatians 2.16 is an important clue to Paul's understanding of faith on the part of human beings. The order of the clauses shows that for Paul, God's deed of rectifying us by the faith of Christ precedes our deed of placing our trust in that Christ. The same order of events is stated in Galatians 3.22, where Paul says that God's promise is given via the faith of Jesus Christ to those who believe. Indeed, Christ's faith is not only prior to ours, but also causative of it. That point is put beyond doubt when Paul says that the proclamation of Christ's faithful death is what has the power to elicit our trusting faith. All of these passages reflect Paul's keen interest in the issue of the genesis of human faith. Uh, I not only thought that was exegetically insightful, but I think it much more accurately captures Luther's understanding of faith in Christ than one where every single instance is read as our faith, our faith, our faith. That's how we get ourselves justified or rectified.
1: Yeah, I think you could even push this analysis a little bit further and say it's not just Christ's act of faithfulness, it's also Christ's own human act of faith, of Christ's own trust. And this is, uh, in my theology, I've tried to correlate this uh, with the Lord's prayer as Jesus's own uh, articulation of his faith in the God of Israel, who is his Abba Father. And of course, the, the petition there, your will be done on earth as in heaven, correlates with the narrative of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I think that without getting into psychological speculations about the personality of Jesus or other such dead ends, uh, one can simply build on this analysis to say that the one who believed for us, believed for us, was Jesus himself, who lived what he prayed in the Lord's Prayer uh, in the decision to go forth uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus is the one who lived and who died by faith. And if we subjectively have faith in God through Christ, it is but an echo of Jesus' own faith.
0: Or even maybe stronger than that, if, as Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, then Christ is actively having faith in me, and I'm I'm leaning on it and borrowing from it and learning from it now. I mean, not just remembering his faithfulness in the garden, but right now he is in- enabling and making the believing happening inside of me.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really a helpful thing to uh, pastorally for people who are feeling themselves in a great deal of doubt and confusion and so forth, is uh, to be able to um, uh, explain the faithfulness of Christ to them, not only uh, uh, in the objective sense that uh, he went to the cross for them, but that's of course extremely important, uh, but also that he is, as you just put it, doing the believing in you, in spite of you. Right, often in spite of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Uh, So mostly for me, it's unbelief, but it's the actual, effective, real presence of the risen Jesus Christ, who is um, finding in you an echo chamber for his own faith.
0: I like that. So, all right, so this is a case where Martin very clearly affirms Luther's way of talking about um, faith, faithfulness, rectification, and so forth. But I have to say, in reading this commentary, I was a little shook up about the contrast between Christ's work as rescue, redemption, liberation from the powers and... Forgiveness. And so as I, here's here's a super fast shorthand. For Luther, forgiveness is almost everything. I mean, obviously we die and we will be raised again, and that will be the final fix. But in this life, forgiveness is his constant drumbeat of the reality of what is given to us now. Martin reading Paul in Galatians puts the accent quite differently. Forgiveness is definitely a subset, he says for Paul, because and this is partly because Paul sees clearly God has been forgiving all along. It's not like God did not forgive before Jesus. It's all over the place. What Martin emphasizes really for Paul is this apocalyptic invasion, this rescue mission, redemption from the powers and the cosmic forces, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. And so really, it's more of an issue of God's active mighty victory over not just sins, but sin, the power of sin. And so, so, uh, to, to add to this, um, doctrinally and existentially, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm aware that um, John Wesley, kind of the center of his, his um, Methodist piety, was that we aren't simply, like, basically, when Wesley had his first conversion experience, it was reading Luther and finally getting the grace of God was real for him. But then later on, Wesley becomes frustrated with Luther and says, look, all he's saying is we're forgiven, 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 but we're continually delivered back to the power of Sin and you know is it isn't the the faith and the redemption that we're given in God enough to break this cycle and chain forever? Is God's grace so weak that we are continually living under the, the the powers? And so Wesley says no. The 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 goal, the success of the Christian life, is to finally break free of the dominating power of sin. And I know that when um. I believe still when Methodist pastors get ordained part of their ordination vows is to say something like they expect that they will reach perfection which means something more like being totally free of the dominating power of sin before their their earthly death um that's been a big theme in like holiness and nazarene uh, offshoots of of wesleyanism as well and i always thought that was utterly preposterous <laughs> <laughs> now I see that Wesley was um, actually not such a bad reader of Paul. I'm just not sure that Paul or Wesley are actually right. <laughs> so yep. why don't you disentangle that whole thorny knot for us?
1: As a teenager, uh, with all this uh, constant emphasis on the forgiveness of sins, and then, of course, going through the very dreary confession of sins that we made every Sunday, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee, all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee, and justly deserve thy temporal and eternal punishments. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray thee of thy boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter, sufferingsome death of my Savior Jesus Christ, that you would have mercy on me and forgive me, a poor, miserable sinner." See after all these years I can still <laughs> recite that.
0: I'm impressed. Liturgy folks, that's why we do it.
1: <laughs> yep, but look at there, there there comes a point of psychological implausibility. You say such a profound prayer of of penance and you look at your life and say what the heck am I talking about? I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't done anything worthy of such a terrible confession of sin. At least psychologically, there's a certain cognitive dissonance that you're saying this and then looking at your life and saying, "What does it correspond to?"
0: Right, or at least that's that, that maybe a confession that suits better for, for private confession than a weekly rote general confession.
1: Well, I think the, here's the issue, which I think even traditional Lutheranism does not is not has not lived up to its profounder insight, which is namely this. That no matter what progress I make in righteousness as a faithful believer uh, in in Christ's fidelity to me and to the whole sinful world, no matter what progress I make, I still, by sheer fact of my organic existence, I am bound up with the world that is still sinful and unredeemed. Uh, As I say to my students, every time you flip on your computer, you are using energy that is produced by the uh, burning of carbon that is toxifying the atmosphere, and you can't get out of it. No matter where you turn in life, you are part of structures of malice and injustice. You may be a Christian rebel against those structures, but that doesn't mean that you're not a part of them. This is your organic connectedness with the unredeemed world that cannot be overlooked by serious conscience, let alone conscience that is exposed to the penetrating judgment of God. You are part of the sinful world, even if in your spirit and conscience you have been converted to the coming world of God's kingdom. And so you must live in this deep tension as a forgiven sinner who remains at the same time a member, uh, if not a citizen, of the structures of malice and injustice. So here I would say the sensitive conscience realizes this, that, that my complicity in injustice is inextricable. No matter how loudly I object and protest, I am part, I am complicit. There Satan can again accuse and, and and sap all confidence that you are just part of the same sick system, that all your pretensions to be otherwise are nothing and therefore stop hoping, stop ex- expecting, otherwise, you know, you're just defeated. Sarah, I witnessed this in my generation, when the 1960s passed into the 1970s, when the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. got turned into disco music and the me generation. It was just the defeat of all the hopes for a better world that the 60s had, had born. So that's what I'm talking about here. Forgiveness is a powerful word of divine release from the guilt, the real guilt I have of, as a member of systems of malice and injustice. And therefore, it is a liberating act that frees me uh, from the ultimate powers of evil and empowers me here and now to work for structures of love and justice.
0: So that was a very eloquent commendation of of forgiveness, and I certainly wouldn't argue with it. But it still leaves me with the problem that it seems like for Paul, these structures of malice and injustice should have been more fundamentally broken by now, and that Paul, uh, that Wesley's call to to uh, perfection in the sense of of no longer being dominated by sin um, should should be bearing more fruit or something like that. So if, if in Christ, the, the cosmic powers have been genuinely overcome or, you know, the the beachhead of invasion has really taken place. Um, why are we still grinding along so much later? And, you know, even if forgiveness does us a world of good, why are, it just seems like we're treading water. Like, so... How, how do you stack those up?
1: Well, you know that's that's a huge question that goes well beyond the interpretation of the Epistle to the Galatians or J. Lewis Martin's commentary on it, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: Well, I'm, that's what I'm saying is if we're reading Galatians now and interpreting it for people now, is this a case where we have to say this is early in, in Paul's career, uh, we are going to correct it with Romans and later stuff because Paul is going to have to, to cope with some of this and therefore we just dismiss it? Or is there still some some word here that has to be potent and powerful, even if we have a lot more church history behind us than Paul did?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that th- obviously this opens a huge can of worms. What do we make of Christian history? And actually, Sarah, you and I have discussed this uh, in terms of the scheme of salvation history in Luke-Acts and the apocalyptic scheme of Paul's theology, for example, in Galatians, and the very real tension between them. Uh, yeah, Just to remind remind our, our viewers, Luke-Acts will give you... The impression that Christian history should be making progress, just as Wesley expected his, uh, his uh, ministers uh, to commit to, that uh, they, they will be freed from the domination of sin. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there were all sorts of born-again Methodist slaveholders all through the Antebellum South, and uh, to this day, the Methodist movement is riven in two, uh, on the cusp of a deep, deep schism uh, between the evangelical and the social gospel wings, uh, just over these issues. Uh, so, uh, as, as much as I think, uh, in my little book uh, Luther versus Pope Leo, I brought John Wesley into Purgatory at the end to try to mediate the dispute between <laughs> between Luther and Leo. Uh, and I do think there's a way of thinking about Wesleyan perfection that is redeemable. Uh, it's, it's not quite preposterous. Uh, I should, in the course of my Christian life, uh, become objectively a better person than I was, just as I want to leave the world, my little piece of the world, a better place than I found it. That in, is inclusive, inclusive of me, my life, my body my stewardship uh, of of my existence, and so forth and so on. I don't deny that uh, there should be an expectation of progress. An expectation of perfection, I think, is utopian, uh, because perfection only comes with the cosmic transformation, which Paul calls the parousia of Christ, or the resurrection of the dead.
0: I guess this will take us too far abroad, but my, my first thought of that is, it, then it makes it sound like um, getting, getting more righteous is just a matter of growing up, and to be young is to be sinful, and so maybe being less sinful is just being too old and tired to sin anymore. <laughs> so, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that would be That a, wouldn't uh, be Christ. Uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be Christ. But what Paul says in Galatians is, we await the hope of righteousness we await the hope of righteousness and that's how paul talks about this interim existence we await the hope of righteousness and i think again that's that genitive expression hope of righteousness which can be a, a kind of a, have a double meaning the hope for a righteousness which we do not yet possess and the hope in a righteousness which is already ours and therefore gives us confidence for the future, I think it can have bo- can and probably does have both nuances to it. Um, and so it's not so much for Paul that I, as a Christian, am making progress as that I am expecting the coming of the uh, 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 the fulfillment of God's promises that Paul summarizes as the fulfillment of the new creation, the resurrection of the dead.
0: Okay. Well then let's pursue this now in another direction. Um, In, in Galatians three, of course, Paul has the, the beautiful lines about, um, uh, being baptized into Christ and the, um, now much abused, uh, Galatians 3, 28 in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew male or female slave or free. I know the, the Martin argues that the male or female is referring specifically to like the, the, um, uh, marital contract of, of Genesis one or something like that. Um, it's, it's not meant to, um, Empower transgender activism. So let's just set that one aside. But, um,
1: well, what, yeah, what Paul, according to Martin, what Paul means is there's neither married nor single.
0: Well, no, he doesn't, I looked back, he he doesn't actually say that. He he says more like, it's it should say more like male and female as like the, be, okay, so let, let's just go into this whole issue, because this, I think, is the most perplexing part of the entire commentary, and even with Martin's wonderfully lucid writing, I'm still completely baffled by it, so... Paul talks about overcoming the powers, these cosmic powers, and the law is ranked among these cosmic powers. But then, as you dig into what Paul means by this, it seems to be something like the elemental distinctions that are the whole story of Genesis 1, the dividing of one from the other, of the earth from the sky, and the the land from the sea, and then at the end, the male from the female. These divisions are exactly the 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 hebraic insight into the nature of reality and then the levitical and Deuteron- deuteronomic laws exist to uh, on the human way it's sort of like a a philosophical religious enactment of the nature of the universe by separating clean and unclean and holy from profane and the distinctions that exist between Jews and Gentiles and between men and women and so forth all of those are in the pentateuch's thinking correlative realities of how god the creator, the good creator made things to be, and then how we as creatures who are subject to forces of like entropy and death and so forth, can restore ourselves to God's good creative purposes, which involve these distinctions in order to be whole again and live well in this created earth. So what seems to be going on in part in Galatians, and this is part of Paul's attack on the the Sinaitic law, is that he's saying that in Christ, in baptism, there is a new unity between these formerly separated things, which seems to be a kind of, like, reversal of creation. And Martin says clearly this this is what licenses someone like Marcion a couple hundred years later to use Paul to utterly alienate the God of the Old Testament, so-called, from the Christian faith that Marcion finds in Paul. So... (laughs) Uh, and we know that in later Pauline letters, he's going to think a little bit differently about difference. So what the heck is going on here? I'm just, I'm completely <laughs> undone.
1: All right. Well, let's, let's get down in the weeds a little bit. The passage in Galatians 3, uh, 27, I'm reading from the Greek. So I'm going to try to literally translate this beginning in verse 27, uh, or actually 26, for you are all sons of God through the pisteos in Christo, through the faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is clearly human faith in Christ Jesus. It's not a genitive construction. Uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many who uh, of you who have been baptized into Christ, notice the passive, It's not an active thing. You have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, that means you've taken off your old costumes. The costumes were identity markers that designated you as slave or free, uh, uh, Greek or Jew, and I'm going to argue married or unmarried. You have been clothed with Christ and then the expression in greek is you are no longer jew nor greek neither slave nor free not even male and female notice that the, there's a slight change in the in the um, particles here it's neither nor neither greek nor jew neither slave nor free and then the last one is not male and female. And Martin argues that that last clause, not male and female, is lifted out of the Greek rendering of the uh, Genesis 1 in male and female, he created them uh, from Genesis 1. Uh, So then finally Paul says, uh, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, but Uh, if uh, you are of Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham Abraham, uh, and uh, 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 the promise, uh, uh, heirs of the promise. So what Paul is doing in this passage, if you ask me, is that he is saying not that the distinctions no longer exist, uh, in the cosmos structured even by the book of Genesis, but that their service as identity markers and therefore as enslaving powers has ceased. And they have been replaced with a new social reality, which is this state of being baptized into Christ, which makes your essential identity that of being in Paul's language, the sons of God, uh, or the, we would say today the children of God. So what is passé is not is not the social reality of this dying world, that there will be in it boss and worker, that there will be in it uh, single and married, that there will be in it Jews and Gentiles. Uh, those uh, Uh, real differences in the real existing world are not canceled and abolished as if by magic with baptism into Christ. But what has powerfully happened is that these distinctions have lost all ultimacy. They no longer define who you are before God. They are no longer essential markers of your identity. They have ceased to function that way, which is, in fact, an enslaving and idolatrous way, according to the Stoicae to cosmo, the, the, uh, the principalities or powers of this uh, existing world. Uh, and in place of them has come about a new social reality, the unity in Christ, uh, which has occurred by your baptism into him, a death and a resurrection, into a new human identity.
0: Okay. Well, I can, I can see that specifically in this Galatians three passage. So if, if Martin says male and female means married and unmarried, it's definitely not in this commentary. You must've picked it up from him somewhere else. Cause I was, I was looking for that and it's not there, but it seems like, then Paul's point is, is trying to be not that there isn't difference, but that difference does not mean opposition or hostility. And I think that would yes. fit well with other Pauline themes that come up Later, so that being a Jew and Gentile is no longer a categorical opposition hostility reality, but in the church now, you could, in a sense, say you're a former Jew and a former Gentile um, because you're all sons of Christ and that's, or sons of God through Christ, and that's the most important thing. But I think it still raises the question of how that erasure of a certain kind of separation. Matches up with Paul's total erasure of other kinds of separations when he talks about the the observance of days, months, seasons, and years, uh, and so forth. Those those are more clearly relating to Sinai's what we might call cultic laws about distinguishing the times and the seasons and the days and and the calendar. Um, and and that seems to be a case where Paul is making those not just a matter of ceasing opposition, but ceasing altogether and erasing that, that observance, because that aspect of the law is somehow in league or has been captivated by the cosmic powers. And that's, I think, where either Paul hasn't thought it through sufficiently, or I can't follow what he's trying to do.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that Martin is, you're right, Martin is very much impressed by these weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves the Galatians want to become again. And uh, he connects that with keeping the Jewish calendar as evidently was advocated by the interlopers along with circumcision and so forth and so on. Uh, And here too, I think that there's a little bit of an overreach in Martin was, of course, uh, trying to make us aware of the cosmic reach and the social implications of Paul's gospel. Um, And he wanted to get it out of the narrow individualism, once I was a sinner, now I'm saved, kind of uh, evangelical piety that uh, misunderstands Paul uh, in a a extraordinarily uh, introspective and individualistic way. Uh, And so he emphasizes these, what I call structures of malice and injustice, which captivate people by captivating their desires, right? And so that Christ comes as one who breaks the power of those rebel uh, principalities and subordinates them uh, anew to the coming of the reign of God. I think that's all part of Martin's agenda in the commentary, and I largely agree with it. Uh, What I'm not so sure I agree with, and I think we mentioned this in the last episode, Sarah, is that um, uh, Martin can give no account of these uh, powers. Uh, He simply acknowledges somehow that they're there and that they're usurpers and so forth and so on. Uh, I'm more inclined to think that Paul is thinking quite soberly about what you could call socially objective, uh, socially objective uh, powers and principalities. Uh, much like in our episode on critical theory some time ago, we talked about how uh, certain uh Uh, ideology, certain ideas, certain ways of thinking, encode certain kinds of identifications of human beings. And these deeply form us through language. They deeply form our thinking about ourselves and our world. And so there's an objectivity to these uh, structures uh, that exists in our very mentalities reinforced by our language, our speech, and our categories, and so forth and so on. So I think that um, uh, uh, Martin, uh, you know, is a biblical exegete, not a systematic theologian. And uh, he, so he just kind of wants to register the point that there are these rebellious powers, these weakened and beggarly uh, uh, principalities uh, who enslave people with their insidious binaries and uh uh claims to define your identity uh in ways that are finally dehumanizing and so forth
0: so i i mean i guess that then to follow up on that he does observe that paul doesn't seem to be opposed to jews keeping the law of sinai and he doesn't even seem to be opposed to Jewish people who believe in Jesus keeping the law. It's specifically making non Jewish Gentile converts to Christ keep the law as if that is the necessary passage to salvation. So if that's the case, uh, uh, aligning the laws separations, which encode what happened in Genesis, that would, I mean, that, that would be going way too far. Paul doesn't actually seem to have that on a, her, on his horizon after all. Is that, would, would that be a fair? Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think,
1: uh, you know, again, that passage that always intrigues me, um, that the law was delivered through angels as through a mediator, but that implies many, but we know that God is one. Uh, Uh, Is Paul basically saying that the Sinaitic legislation, the legislation in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, the 604 commandments as the rabbis counted them, these many and diverse laws uh, covering everything from ritual behavior to to, uh, moral behavior to political arrangements uh, to... um, religious laws, strictly speaking, and so forth, uh, is Paul saying that this is simply uh, one example among many of the ways in which the angels uh, governed the nations up until the time of Christ, that God let these uh, uh, various angelic supervising powers uh, 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 organize various human cultures and uh, keep them like a pedagogue until the coming of Christ should be revealed? Is Paul really kind of deeply relativizing the legislation of Moses as, as Luther put it, the Sachsen Spiegel of the Jews, right? right? Something like, is, that, is that what's going on here? I, I'm inclined to that interpretation, Uh, And that would mean, and I think there's a lot of Old Testament literature here that could back this up, that would mean that these angelic powers or principalities in Paul's mind uh, have been delegated by God as stewards of the nations in various ways, but they've forgotten that they're serving God and become themselves rebellious. They've become enslavers. They've become cruel pedagogues. Uh, and so forth so that i think at all costs i am a jew and i must be a jew and i cannot be anything but a jew or i think at all costs i'll never be a jew i don't want to be a jew i can't be a jew i'm a gentile you know and either way you become enslaved to that identity politics that we talked about previously right? right and so forth uh and so here comes christ saying look at the legitimate function you had was a pedagogical one, to civilize and discipline peoples. Uh, but this was a nothing but a temporary task. Uh, and now with the coming of Christ, it's passé. It's no longer, uh, it's dethroned in its claim to ultimacy or finality.
0: So then the goal is not to homogenize into one new culture or religion, but to have fellowship among all the members of all the different overlapping venn diagrams of identities religious cultural social etc
1: well wouldn't that be wonderful <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be wouldn't that really be the beloved community is right, if we right. could all in our creaturely finitude simply accept this is how god created and formed me it's not ultimate it's not the be all and end all it's just God's merciful love for little old me. This is who I am. This is where I'm coming from. And now in Christ, I get to be in dialogue, fellowship, of love and community with all sorts of interesting other people who have been formed by the same creator in these diverse ways.
0: Oh, Dad, you are still such a 60s optimist, but okay. I am. Um... So, <laughs> so... <laughs> Let's let's move towards our closing now. Following up exactly this, because after Paul's raillery against the law in Galatians, he wraps up by talking about the law of Christ, and um, so clearly that's not a contradiction in terms. But um, so w- what Martin basically points out is that Paul's thinking seems to be something like this: the Sinaitic law is multiple and composite, like as you mentioned, there's whatever six hundred remember what the exact number is, of of the laws. And then you keep those laws and you're set. And then you have the law of Christ, which seems to be one, which is Love and um being a post sixties non-optimist, I kind of roll my eyes whenever I see the law of love or hear someone say it, because I'm like, Well, what does that actually mean, dude? It sounds nice. Lots of people do lots of terrible things and claim that it's love, so I'm not terribly impressed just by the word anymore. But you know, clearly for Paul it has heft and and substance here and And I think what's helpful about it is that Martin says, for Paul, you don't arrive at the law of Christ or the law of love by deleting one by one the Sinaitic laws. Like, oh, the law of love is not kosher. Let's throw that out. You know, (laughs) you know, and like, it's not a subtractive of Sinai. It's a different model entirely of what law for, I don't know, community Together fellowship could mean. So yeah, okay, uh, Hippie, what do you have to say to that?
1: (laughs) Well, I think you're right. I think you and Martin are both right, that that in contrast to the plurality of laws, complex laws, very difficult to negotiate, uh, and Paul's constant rebuke to the Galatians, you're obligated to keep the whole law if you get circumcised. That's exactly what Deuteronomy says. That's exactly, Paul's a good reader of Deuteronomy. He knows Deuteronomy very well. You can't take away any of these laws. You've got to keep them all. And try doing that. Try obeying simultaneously 600 some different commandments. Very complicated, very difficult, and very um, binding or enslaving, if you want to put it that way in Paul's perspective.
0: And let me just add, as someone who has lived in multiple foreign countries, trying to live according to modern bureaucracies is harder. So uh, try, try not breaking any laws on the books in any modern nation. Good luck. You are definitely in violation of lots. You just don't know it.
1: Which is, of course, an opportunity for great legal lawlessness, because then prosecutors can selectively target you and find a pretext for indicting you because inevitably you break some bureaucratic law. Um, Being that as it may, I think that the singularity of the law of love is for Paul always uh, uh, disambiguated by the form of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ is the one whom the gospel narrative tells who bore our burdens, which were not his, but he made them his own. He took upon himself the burdens of others that were not properly his own. He bore their burdens in their place. That's the form of love. That's what agape is. The, this kind of love that looks in the direction of a bad or needy person in order to create a good or do a good, something like that, rather than uh, uh, being uh, out for self-gratification or something like that. So I think that love is disambiguated when it is filled out narratively with the, the Christ form. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. who humbled himself and became obedient, uh, and so forth. So I think that uh, the law of love uh, is simply a way of stating in the abstract who Christ is, what Christ did, uh, exemplified and did, and therefore the structure of life for those who are now living in Christ That as Luther so charmingly put it, uh, Christians become little Christs to the neighbor. And so Christ lives in them as they become little Christs to the neighbor, bearing others' burdens and so forth. So I think that this is uh, not a a solution to your postmodern disenchantment. that, uh, that it, uh, love is utopian and beyond the possibility of realization. Uh, because Paul does not expect utopian results from this. He warns against the alternative. If you bite and de- devour uh, uh, each other, beware that you won't actually perish. He warns that way in Galatians. It's pretty clear to Paul what is destructive behavior. Uh, But what is good behavior? Uh, What is wholesome, salutary, saving, healing behavior? He can only say, for freedom, you have the mind of Christ. In freedom, you get to be a little Christ to your neighbor. Go figure it out. Don't expect that this is bringing in the kingdom of God, but do believe that in doing this, the kingdom of God breaks in a little bit in your little sphere of the world.
0: I like how you connect it so strongly to the narrative of of Christ's actual life, history, and and death and resurrection. Because if you take his list of Paul's list of vices or his his fruit of the spirit, I don't think any you know consistently moral thinker around the world is going to have substantial argument with any of those. But then what what Paul was saying is that, you know, we we know conceptually and sometimes in practice what those are, but how do we, how do we really know? How is that really felt in and filled in? And it's filled in by tracking this one particular story. And I think I like that also because it means that the the best account of the law that Paul would give the of the Old Testament law that Paul would give would be because it has two voices and one is a positive voice, that would be the voice that tracks the narrative of Genesis in a way to um, affirm and praise the creator, not in a way to um, divide and create hostility between aspects of, of the created reality. So I think there's maybe some, some deep structure similarity there that the, the ethic arises out of the soil of the narrative. And and surely that is that is the human way ultimately of of depicting the what is good in human life you know on the like the classic hero's journey or something you you actually look what does this person do that is admirable and then you model yourself on that so it seems to be both making a particular particularist christian case but also fitting in with this very deep structure of of um, created reality itself and human experience around the world I think that could work.
1: Yeah, I think so, Sarah. What it really, the message of the gospel in our cultural situation, for freedom, Christ has set you free. You're no longer, uh, you who have the spirit are no longer under any law, and you are no longer trying to justify yourself before God by your works. You are free from all of that. Now, you are free for something. You are free to uh, look at the actual uh, objective empirical situation that confronts you on your doorstep, freed to actually see. Your eyes are open. The ideological blinders are off. You simply see the human being, the, uh, the wounded man on the road, the person in need, and you, and you have the freedom and the imagination to say, if I were in that one's shoes, what would I want? So you have to creatively use your reason, your imaginative reason, in order to concretely affect the love of Christ that has found you and now flows through you into this uh, situation. That's, I say, not at all utopian because it doesn't accomplish any human progress towards the kingdom. But it does, it does, and this is the consolation and encouragement, it does put into effect the kingdom of God on the earth. It's an answer to the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that can actually happen in the living of a Christian life.
0: So that's interesting. I mean, that really means that all rules, all laws are general and generic. There's no way you can multiply enough rules to cover every situation even though like the Talmud famously tries um and yet there are still you know in in the nation of Israel judges and rabbis who are continuing to have to add even to that so i th- I, I, I don't mean to criticize that i'm just saying that the, the nature of a rule or a law is that it has to be generic but then the the concrete task of the living person in a living society is to discern and enact for between myself and between the real neighbor that I'm encountering, how that rule comes to fruitful life. You know, and I, I think for Paul, the only way it will come to, to the right kind of fruitful life is by the um, shaping of the narrative of Jesus Christ and the active work of the spirits in directing the action in this particular moment in time.
1: Right, and that's how the, that's the guilt of sin being forgiven, the power of sin is broken. And that means a creative space is is available to us uh, to create structures of love for the sake of justice, rather than living passively as puppets and minions of structures of malice uh, and injustice.
0: Right. And it it certainly is not um, some sort of um, absolutizing of, of spontaneous impulse or rejecting the need to study uh, law or or stories or patterns as they've come down to us because all of those things that are are what form us and make us capable of responding and discerning properly in the moment as it arises. There's a there's Absolutely. a constant kind of and feedback between the two.
1: And one therefore one final uh, anecdote from J. Lewis Martin when and I may have mentioned this in the past, but it's worth repeating when one uh, uh, perplexed uh, graduate student was complaining to him, well, you know, why, why do we have to do all this studying? Why don't we just go out there and do what, what the gospel requires us to do? And Martin pondered for a moment and then said in rabbinic fashion, if God condemns the wisdom of this world, how much more does he condemn its folly? <laughs>
0: Right, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but
1: right. That's the right. new life. But a new creation, the freedom creation. to love. Yes.
0: All right. Well, I don't think we can cap it off any better than that. So next time on the show, we will be returning a bit to philosophy by popular demand. After critical theory and empiricism, we are going to be talking about Dad's preferred philosophical approach of pragmatism, which is way more exciting than it sounds, I promise. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.